welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist Podcast. My name is Erin McCreary, and I'm a clinical assistant professor and infectious diseases clinical pharmacist at the University of Pittsburgh. I am joined today by my good friend, colleague, and rock star podcaster, Ryan Shields, who's an associate professor at the University of Pittsburgh. Ryan, thanks for joining me. Hey, good morning, Erin. Thanks for having me. Let's use that rock star term very loosely when it's related to my name, please. I don't know, Ryan. We've been pretty good at these podcast things, particularly you missed it last week on the Breakpoints podcast. We covered notable publications in the infectious diseases space from the first half of 2020 that we think could impact your practice and that you may have missed while focusing on COVID-19. So today we're going to keep going with that theme and we have some really awesome publications to discuss with you guys about gram negatives, gram positives, some randomized trials, therapeutic drug monitoring will be a big theme of today and more. We do want to remind our audience that any board certified infectious diseases pharmacist listening can obtain BCIDP credit for this podcast, which you can find information on how to get this credit by going to the SIDP website. All right, Ryan, my rock star podcast friend, do you want to <laughs> do you want to kick us off with the first study? Yeah, I'll definitely kick us off. And what more exciting topic to talk about than CRE, PKPD, and TDM? I think this is going to be a great podcast. And let's get it started with the Crackle 2 study. This formally came out in June of this year in Lancet ID. And this is a multi-center study led by the ARLG or Antibiotic Resistance Leadership Group from which we've seen many publications over the last several years. And the purpose of this study was really to define the epidemiology and clinical outcomes associated with carbapenem-resistant Enterobacteriaceae in general. And really the premise of the study is predicated on an updated CDC definition of CRE that was revised in 2015. The most recent and contemporary definition of CRE as defined by the CDC includes resistance to any carbapenem. This includes ertapenem, imipenem, meropenem, or doripenem. And notably, it does not include isolates that are of the intermediate susceptibility range. This is different from the 2012 criteria that we previously used and Crackle previously used, which defined intermediate susceptibility to any carbapenem plus resistance to third generation cephalosporins. So we have a new cleaner definition of CRE, but as you'll see in the study, it does provide some important epidemiological shifts in how we identify and characterize CRE. So overall here, the goal is to define the clinical spectrum of CRE in the United States specifically and answer a very specific question. Does production of carbapenemases among carbapenem-resistant Enterobacteriaceae lead to worse or adverse outcomes for patients? So this is a prospective observational multicenter study of consecutive patients with CRE at 49 hospitals in the U.S. Patients were recruited from April of 2016 to August of 2017, which is a very important time period because, of course, this is now after the introduction of some of our new agents like ceftazidime, maybe Bactam, that has activity for CRE. Overall, they included over 1,000 isolates in this study, specifically 1,040 CRE isolates, again, from consecutive patients. So this is a pretty good epidemiological representation of what we see in the U.S. Not surprisingly, most of the isolates collected from the study came from the northeast of the country, about 44% of isolates overall, and the urinary tract was the most common source for isolating CRE amongst these hospitals. So there's a couple of major points I want to underscore for the audience. The first major point is about the epidemiology specifically. When they characterized isolates, they found among these 1,000 CRE isolates, they broke down very nicely into three groups. 
The first group was confirmed carbapenemase producing enterobacteriaceae. And they define this either by a positive PCR test, a positive phenotypic test in the microbiology lab, or confirmed by whole genome sequencing. So these isolates all harbored carbapenemases. That included about 59% of total isolates. The second group were carbapenem-resistant enterobacteriaceae that did not harbor carbapenemases. And these were confirmed phenotypically to be resistant to at least one carbapenem, usually ertapenem, but sometimes also meropenem or imipenem as well. This included 19% of the total population. But perhaps one of the more unexpected findings of the study is the last group included 22% of isolates that were unconfirmed CRE. Now, this is a very important observation because CRE initially were identified by local laboratories and usually by automated methods. When these isolates were sent to a central laboratory for confirmatory testing, they found that 22% of all the isolates were in fact ertapenem intermediate or susceptible. And they did this by two different methods, first by e-test and then repeat by automated testing panels and indeed found that these isolates were not resistant. So this is important and in a practical consideration that we see in many microbiology labs is sometimes these automated tests do overcall resistance and it includes to be an important cohort in this study. Now, the other important thing that helps define this epidemiological shift predicated on the CDC definition is that only 66% of the total isolates included in this study would have met the prior CDC definition in 2012. Not surprisingly, 84% of carbapenemase producers would have met the prior definition, but interestingly, only 50% of non-carbapenemase producing CRE would meet that definition, and only 29% of unconfirmed CRE would have met that definition. So what you're seeing here is a shift then. By having a clearer definition of exclusively resistance, this helps, but it does identify more isolates that either don't have carbapenemases or aren't confirmed by repeat testing. In terms of the bugs themselves, most of the carbapenemase-producing isolates were Klebsiella, pneumoniae, and not surprisingly, those almost exclusively harbored either KPC2 or KPC3 carbapenemases. Overall, 92% of the carbapenemase-producing isolates in this study harbored KPC. This is important because the other enzymes we worry about and we often miss with some of our new agents like NDM, for instance, or OXA48, were exceedingly rare in the U.S. Only 22 NDM isolates and 21 OXA48 isolates of the over 1,000 isolates that were studied here. So these bugs still appear to be exceedingly rare, which I think is a good news for us taking care of patients in the U.S. The other important thing about the carbapenemase producers Klebsiella specifically, these still tend to be due to one predominant clone. This is sequence type 258 or ST258. And that contrasts to what we see in the non-carbapenemase producing groups, both carbapenem resistant and the unconfirmed CRE, which are much more genetically diverse. Within these groups, we see a more even distribution of Klebsiella pneumoniae, Enterobacter species, and E. coli. And not surprisingly, many of those harbor either AMPC or ESBL beta-lactamases. So much more diverse, and generally these groups are due to many different clonal groups, which means there's not one predominant clone that's disseminating across the country, there's much more genetic variability. The second important point I want to make about this study is the clinical outcomes. Overall, 43% of the patients included in the study met criteria for infection, and 57% were colonized. 
Of course, this is an important stewardship pearl here. Oftentimes when we see resistant bugs, clinicians are more inclined sometimes to treat them even though they don't meet definitions for infection. This is a good reminder, even among our most resistant bugs, more than half of them were associated with colonization and not true infection. Among those patients that were truly infected, which included 449 patients overall, they analyzed and compared the three groups using DOOR analysis, or Desirability for Ordinal Outcome Ranking Analysis, which is a good way of looking at ordinal outcomes rather than just alive or dead at a specific time point. The major finding here is that there was absolutely no difference in the three groups, which are carbapenemase-producing Enterobacteriaceae, non-carbapenemase-producing carbapenem-resistant Enterobacteriaceae, and unconfirmed CRE, which we would think of as being very different groups and very different bugs, there was absolutely no difference in clinical outcome. Now they've stratified by both invasive infections and type of bug and severity of illness, and similarly found no difference in outcomes. I've personally talked to many of the study investigators, including David Van Dyne and Cesar Arias, who are the co-lead investigators of this study. They looked everywhere to find a difference in outcomes, and no matter where they looked, they couldn't find a difference. So this is very, very important. Now, I think one of the things we think of as SIDP members and clinical pharmacists, well, what were the treatments that these patients received? One thing to keep in mind with this study is this was a prospective observational study, but there was no intervention. So treatment was assigned by the treating clinician, and not surprisingly, it was highly variable. And only 23% of patients received septazidine, maybe Bactam, in the carbapenemase-producing group. So there's still a lot of treatment variability, and perhaps that's one of the reasons why they couldn't find outcome differences between these three groups. All right, good point. And the best tables are always in the supplements. Indeed. And, uh, and so the, the devil is certainly in the details with this paper. So let me quickly summarize the two major points of, of CRACKLE2 here, which I think is a very important paper that helps define the U.S. epidemiology and treatment. Important point number one is that 41% of CRE do not harbor carbapenemases. This has important laboratory and stewardship implications. You cannot treat all CRE the same. There are different nuances. And if you see a phenotype that doesn't quite make sense to you, but you see carbapenem resistance, perhaps this study suggests that many of those isolates should be rerun for susceptibility until we have confidence that we really do have a carbapenem resistant organism. The second important point here is outcomes are poor no matter how you define CRE, whether they have carbapenemases or they're carbapenem resistant by another mechanism. We see here that there's not major differences in these groups. There's an important treatment variable here, but outcomes are still poor, which underscores the importance of severity of illness and underlying diseases in patients that are infected with CRE. Ryan, that was an excellent summary. And, and speaking of CRE definitions and on this theme of CRE, we're learning that this is so nuanced and these isolates that we see are not created equal and the treatments may in fact vary. And so there was also an awesome viewpoint published in CID this year by David Livermore and then SIDP member Dave Nicolau and colleagues titled Carbapenem Resistant Enterobacterialis, Carbapenem Resistant Organisms, Carbapenemase Producing Enterobacterialis, and Carbapenemase Producing Organisms. Terminology passed its quote sell-by date in an era of new antibiotics and regional carbapenemase epidemiology. So that's a really long title, but it's because we have a lot of different words to describe these organisms. And so essentially what the authors walk through and highlight is how our terminology for CRE and or CROs or whatever you want to call them is not clear. And I think we see this. We see this all the time in papers when we're reading, when we're writing. Do I use MDR? Do I use XDR? Do I use CRE? Do I use CRO? It's pretty confusing. We don't have international consensus and we're 
every single day learning more and more about these resistant isolates. And so this was almost a viewpoint kind of position paper, and it was a call for authors, journals, and regulatory agencies to be more precise as we move forward, especially as it pertains to new antibiotic development because the mechanisms of action are important in relation to the mechanisms of resistance. And so just some examples that they point out where CRE as a blanket term is quite confusing. You did an exceptional job highlighting the crackle epidemiology, which shows us that they are in fact not created equal, although outcomes might be equal. Um, but the first issue they point out is how Proteus mirabilis, Morganella morganii, and then Providentia species, they have intrinsically elevated MICs to imipenem. And we've seen this come up here. We see this report with an imipenem MIC of eight and but mirapenem less than equal to one. And we get asked, can you use mirapenem? Well, yes, of course you can for these isolates. And the CDC does actually carve these ones out from the definition of CRE. But that's just one example where that's something to be cognizant of. The next important point that we see in clinical practice all the time, as you, you started to describe and when you talked about the crackle data, are these Enterobacteriaceae, particularly Enterobacters and Citrobacters that have ertapenem MICs greater than one, so they're carbapenem resistant, but their mirapenem MICs are less than or equal to one or very susceptible. So most of these isolates are not carbapenemase producing, particularly in the Enterobacter species, and then the elevated ertapenem MIC may be a result of AMC, ESBL, plus minus porin loss, I mean, possibly some efflux. And we would have no issue using mirapenem two grams every eight hours in those situations, but the patient is still getting flagged as CRE. This has infection prevention implications as well. If the isolate does not harbor a carbapenemase, we're not really worried about plasmid-mediated transmission, of course. And so I think we would all agree a patient with a KPC-producing isolate is not the same as a patient with a non-carbapenemase producing enterobacter, yet we currently are flagging them from an infection prevention standpoint in the same way, and that may or may not be appropriate. If the isolates harbor carbapenemase, we may prefer the addition of a beta-lactamase inhibitor when treating, regardless of the MIC, and that's something else to consider. And then the final point they made is that the OXA class D carbapenemases only weakly hydrolyze carbapenems for, for some of them. This is an incredibly diverse class of carbapenemases, but some of them are weak hydrolyzers, and so you'll see susceptible carbapenem MICs despite harboring a carbapenemase. And so this phenotypic genotypic discrepancy is also hard. A lot of labs are not routinely doing the genetics on carbapenem susceptible isolates, and so our FE is probably underreported, and, and it gets tricky. And then it gets even trickier when we get outside of the Enterobacteriaceae class, so let's talk Pseudomonas. Pseudomonas' carbapenem resistance is overwhelmingly poor in loss, at least in the United States, but then in other parts of the world, such as the Middle East, this is due to carbapenemase production. And so, again, carbapenem-resistant pseudomonas has significant treatment implications. In the United States, we might just use ceftolazine tazobactam, but that's not going to work for a carbapenemase harboring pseudomonas. So, things to think about. So, in summary, the authors state with the quote, proliferation of diverse carbapenemases and the advent of new therapies, end quote. So this is the world we're living in. Way more carbapenemases we're discovering, but also new antibiotics, which is good. But because of those combinations, it's no longer adequate to just say CRE. We need to be more precise. We need to define things at the enzyme level, ideally. And it's important, increasingly, to detect carbapenemase production rather than just carbapenem resistance. And whenever possible, to identify the enzyme family present, both in your day-to-day -day patient care and when you're publishing these data, 
and we should strive for a common language. And, and if you have to use a more common term and not as precise as the enzyme level, they do advocate to use carbapenemase producing versus non-carbapenemase producing rather than just saying carbapenem resistant. Yeah, those are really important points, Erin. And you're starting to see a shift in the literature, but it's really true. You have to know the enzyme that you're treating to pick the right drug. And also the enzyme gives you some insights into what you can and cannot do from a PKPD optimization standpoint. Which brings us into our next study, which looks specifically at, you mentioned NDM. So this study looked at metallobetalactamase producing infections. And this is an area where we still have extremely limited treatment options. So something that intriguingly over the past few years has panned out in the in vitro data is the synergy between the combination of ceftazidime, avibactam, plus ACE-TRIANAM. And so in this situation, ACE-TRIANAM is stable to hydrolysis by metallobetalactamases, but not to ESBLs or AMC. And so you're essentially giving the combination of ACE-TRIANAM, avibactam, where the avibactam is blocking other carbapenemases, AMCs, and ESBLs, and then H3NM is stable against the metallobetalactamase. And we've used this combination clinically off-label, but the study I'm going to get into is by Dr. Falcone and colleagues, and it was published in CID in May of 2020. And it's called The Efficacy of Ceftazidime Abibactam Plus H3NM in Patients with Bloodstream Infections Caused by Metallobetalactamase Producing Enterobacterialis. So the first clinical data in this space evaluating this in vitro combination, because as we know, in vitro doesn't always pan out clinically and vice versa. If you're not using ceftazavi plus ACE-TRIANAM for metallobetalactamases, your other options are maybe ACE-TRIANAM alone if it only harbors a metallobetalactamase and it doesn't have any other ESBLs or whatnot in it. It's pretty rare though. Polymyxins, potentially cefiteracol, and then our non-beta-lactam choices, if they're susceptible, although there's extremely limited data using those, and you'd probably be using them in some kind of combination therapy, but then you get into your tetracyclines, aminoglycosides, fluoroquinolones, maybe Bactrim, maybe phosphomycin. So this study was a prospective observational study of patients at three hospitals in Italy and in Greece. They enrolled 102 patients to receive either ceftazav H-trianam or other active antibiotics. And the other active antibiotics could be anything that I just listed. It included miropenem. And when they gave miropenem, they gave it as two grams every eight hours over a six to eight hour infusion. So they're essentially giving continuous miropenem, which is pretty neat. Tigacycline, their dose was 100 BID routinely. The H-trianam dose was two grams every eight hours over a two-hour bolus, and I laughed that they called two hours a bolus. I was like, I love these people. <laughs> Look at all their dose optimization. And then <laughs> ceftazavi, like, can you imagine calling a two-hour bolus? That's what I'm going to start calling it. Six-hour infusions are standard. Yeah, two right. Two-hour boluses. Ceftazavi, they gave it the 2.5 Q8 package insert dosing, but here's another fun fact. So 50% of the patients that got treated with combo, so 26 patients total, their ceftazavi was also infused over eight hours. So they basically gave continuous infusion ceftazavi. The other 50% got the standard two-hour bolus, let's call it. Table two in this paper shows other active therapy, and this is very reminiscent of other trials and what you pointed out with the crackle data, Ryan, in that other active therapy is just this hot mess of a disaster of random combinations. So it's like what we saw in Tango 2 from your pen and vapor bactam. I think a handful of patients got 13 to 14 different treatment regimens and most of them polymyxin based. So when you broke down the epi of these MBLs, 82 patients had NDM producing infections and 20 had VIM or VIM producing infections. 
50% of the VIM isolates of 10 patients actually did have an isolate that was susceptible to Astrinium alone, whereas only 7% of the NDMs were, which is what we've only had a couple metallobetalactamases since I've been at the University of Pittsburgh, but our one VIM was Astrinium susceptible. The presence of genes were determined via PCR, and they did this direct from positive blood culture, which is neat. So they were able to get patients on active therapy very quickly. Their isolates were predominantly Klebsiella pneumoniae, 93 of them, but there were five Enterobacters, one Morganella, and three E. coli. The primary outcome was all-cause mortality at 30 days, and they did find that it was significantly lower in patients that were treated with septazamine, maybe Bactam, plus Astrinam, 19% versus 44% mortality at 30 days in patients that were treated with colistin-based regimens or other active therapy. Actually, the patients treated with colistin-based regimens had an even higher mortality, 59%, compared to other active therapy, non-colistin-based. The mortality in that group was 26% for then a composite 44% mortality in the other active therapy group. This was significantly different. They did a propensity score adjustment, and they demonstrated that ceftazav plus astranium was associated with not only lower mortality, but lower clinical failure at day 14 and a shorter length of stay. Additionally, 11% of the patients in the colistin group, or sorry, I keep calling it the colistin group, that's not 100% fair. It was other active therapy. They did not all receive colistin. But 11% of patients in the other active therapy group experienced drug-induced AKI versus 2%, which was only one patient in the ceftazav astranium group. They did find that cardiovascular disease, solid organ transplant, and SOFA score were independently associated with 30-day mortality as well, which that's why they adjusted for their propensity matching, but they did find that ceftazav astranium treatment was protective. This is very exciting because we knew this combination looked good in the lab. We have been giving it to our patients because we have very, very limited other treatment options, and now we have clinical data that shows that this is extremely effective and saves lives compared to other active therapies, which again are largely colistin-based. So I feel very comfortable recommending this combination for a patient with an MDL. The question will remain on whether we use this combination or sofiterocol. So can we give sofiterocol monotherapy? The only clinical data that exists for metallobetalactamase producing infections and sofiterocol are teased out from the credible study, which is yet to be published, but they did present these data to the FDA about a year ago. Those slides are publicly available it looks like there were 16 metallobetalactamase producing isolates in the credible cohort, and 75% of them had clinical cure, but we don't really have further data beyond that, and it's 16 patients. So that, I think, is an important question that will remain to be seen is what's the role of sofiterocol for metallos. And then a question for you, Ryan, is are these data readily translatable to imipenem relobactam and miropenem babrobactam? So can I give other novel betalactam, betalactamase inhibitors plus Astranium and see the same outcome? Yeah, good question, Erin. And before I answer that question, I, I feel contractually obligated to, to say, hey, this is another place to insert Jason Gallagher's dumpster fire for colistin. Yeah. These data are just so compelling, right? Yeah, I wish Even we could put for MBLs. I wish we could meme the podcast. But there's... Yeah, we have to figure out how to do that. I think it's just our voices, unfortunately. But. <laughs> All right. So visualize a dumpster fire <laughs> and associate that with giving patients colistin, whether it's for KPC, NDM. These data are just becoming so overwhelming. Now, to circle back to your question, can we apply the same logic with what we see with Ceftazavi and his Trinam to other beta-lactam, beta-lactivase inhibitor combinations? Well, the short answer is probably yes. But the longer answer is it really depends. 
We have some data from Eric Wenzler's lab that shows among eight isolates that used aztreinam in combination with either meropenem, vaberbactam, or ceftazidime, vibactam, they saw nice time kill responses in vitro. And you could hypothesize that because relabactam is very similar to avibactam in that regard, that you can inhibit other serine beta-lactamases and protect aztreinam to do its job against MDLs. So on principle, I think that probably yes, you can interchange one or all three of these agents to accomplish the same job. But there are some nuances here that I think are important for our audience to, to be aware of. And this, of course, came to light earlier this year when we had a ceftazidime-avibactam shortage. This question came up, what do we do? What's our alternative to ceftazavia in this context? You know, my so, other favorite thing to say other than the supplements are the best is that never let a good drug shortage go to waste. It's always an opportunity <laughs> for research. Seriously, this is where we get all our info out. You're totally right. And we had some opportunities to think about this question during this shortage specifically. So what I will say is if you have a metallobetalactamase, whether it's NDM or VIM, plus a serine ESBL, meaning CTXM, SHV, or TEM, we know that our three beta-lactamase inhibitors, avibactam, relabactam, and vaberbactam, probably inhibit the serine beta-lactamase as well enough to protect ACE treonam. That being said, you have to be careful not to extrapolate these data too far. And I think the other place that these data get extrapolated to is an organism like Stenotrophomonas, which has an intrinsic metallobetalactamase in L1 on the chromosome and has another chromosomal beta-lactamase known as L2. Notably, Vaberbactam and Relabactam do not inhibit L2 beta-lactamases very well. And so for Stenotrophomonas, for instance, Avibactam is actually probably the best beta-lactamase inhibitor to use in that context. So be careful of what we have here. What we have is limited clinical data, some in vitro data, but overwhelmingly it's pointing us in the same direction that this is, should be the preferred approach over colistin or polymyxin-based treatment for metallobetalactamase-producing organisms. And actually, Aaron, this is a great segue into the other thing that we need to talk about are the practical considerations here. So when you're thinking about ceftazavi and acetrinam, of course, you can dose both of those agents every eight hours. Maybe you can give them both as continuous infusion. That's notably different than a drug like imipenem which has a very short stability and cannot be given over a prolonged infusion and needs to be dosed every six hours. So some of these practical considerations, I think, will be very important at the bedside when we're looking at interchanging these combinations. So my general recommendation is if you can use ceftazavi plus acetrinam, that's where we have the data and that's the combination I personally feel most comfortable with. Yeah, practical points are important, right? Look at you being a real pharmacist. How about that? Every now and then, we've got to stability data, right? Hey, that's actually a perfect segue to talk about some in vitro data, which we don't commonly do on this podcast. But I think this paper by Tom Lodis, Brian Suji, and colleagues is very, very important for these practical considerations we're talking about, because this was a paper published in JAC earlier this year that used hollow fiber infection models to try and answer some very basic questions about this combination of ceftazavi plus acetrinam for metallobetalactamase producing enterobacteriaceae. And what they did with these hollow fiber models is really they wanted to do something that was clinically applicable. So they stuck to just FDA approved dosing regimens and they asked the basic question, how should these drugs optimally be given together to maximize in vitro bactericidal killing and maximize the pharmacodynamic exposures that we can anticipate. So the three fundamental questions they set out to answer is number one, do you give these drugs at the same time? 
give them concomitantly or to use stagger administration. There's been a previous school of thought that you should always give Ceftaz AV first. So AV back to him is present when you give ACE tree and AM, so it's not immediately hydrolyzed. So do you give them together or do you stagger them? Question number one. Question number two, should you give standard infusions? We in the US define these as 30 minute infusions or should you give prolonged or continuous infusions? And perhaps maybe that's the way to go. And then finally, are you giving enough ACE trenam if you give six grams a day at two grams every eight hours or do you need more? And so this study answered all three of those questions. This is a hollow fiber study. And one of the things to note about hollow fiber studies is you can study specific isolates in great detail but you're limited in terms of the number of isolates you can study. And that's true in this paper as well. They studied one E. coli and one Klebsiella pneumoniae isolate. Both of these harbored NDM and a CTXM beta-lactamases. And so you have to ask yourself, are these two isolates representative of all the NDMs out there? Probably not, but it gives us a deep dive into the specific nuances of these two bugs now, they did many different hollow fiber infection models, and the major outcome here and what we're looking at is bacterial kill, the rate of bacterial kill, and then suppression over a seven-day in vitro experiment. And in short, what they find is that giving these drugs simultaneously is better than staggering administration, which is new information. Previously, we've tried to stagger and be clever with these doses. These hollow fiber data, albeit in vitro, suggest you should be giving these drugs together when you can. Not surprisingly, they found that longer infusions of at least two hours, and perhaps even more beneficially as a continuous infusion, are better than shorter infusions. And interestingly and noteworthy, that standard ACE trenam doses of two grams every eight hours did a little bit worse than two grams every six hours, or alternatively a 1.5 gram dose every six hours, which is interesting because we've always kind of thought maybe we're giving enough ACE-TRENAM, do we need to push the doses? And they do see a little bit of a benefit here. Now, notably, they only saw this benefit with giving more ACE-TRENAM against the E. coli isolate, and it's less convincing for the Klebsiella isolate. So now you're talking about a difference in one isolate and giving a little bit more ACE-TRENAM. I think the other thing to notice about going to ACE-TRENAM every six hours is it does become operationally a bit more difficult to give these drugs simultaneously if you're giving Ceftaz AV every eight hours and now Acetrinam every six hours. And in fact, in their hollow fiber models, they do say that they gave these drugs simultaneously Q8 and Q6 hours. And I was like thinking through the math on this and I have no idea how they did this. So I'm gonna have to reach out to Tom and ask them how they actually did this simultaneously. But there are ways to operationalize this if you did it as continuous infusion, for instance. So really the three dosing regimens that they recommend based on the, the hollow fiber data is Ceftaz AV as a standard dose, two grams of Ceftazidime and 0.5 grams of Avibactam every eight hours over a two hour infusion, plus Acetrinam, two grams Q6. You could give both of those as continuous infusions. So Ceftaz AV at 7.5 grams total per day as a continuous infusion and Acetrinam at eight grams total per day as a continuous infusion, or you can fragment those doses and give them both every six hours. And those would be the optimal ways to treat metallobetalactamase producers in vitro. Now, we have to, again, be careful extrapolating these data too far. And the other thing I'll point out as just a word of caution is we know very little about giving maximal doses of now two beta-lactams to patients. And is that going to be clinically safe? There's some data out there, of course, with ACE-TRENAM. Once you start pushing those doses, you do see some elevation in, in liver transaminase enzymes. Um, so we'll see if this is important over the longer term, but I think we do have to be clear that the safety of optimizing two different beta-lactams at the highest dosing ranges 
We don't have a lot of safety data there. And so that's perhaps one of the next big issues that needs to be worked out. And then the final thing is you're talking to your nursing colleagues that we have to think about is the physical compatibility of these two agents. And I think, Erin, you have some more information on that for us. Yeah, when we rolled out dose optimization at our center, this is a, one of the primary things you need to do is make your nurses a Y-site chart. This varies based on the generic product. It varies based on the concentration. So you can't just say drug A is or is not Y-site compatible with drug B. It's very, very dependent on the concentrations. And I know when we went live with three-hour infusions of all anti-pseudomonal beta-lactams, we had to adjust some of the concentrations of those or with vancomycin so that we had more Y-site friendliness. Tom's group did a nice paper also published this year in Clinical Therapeutics in July of 2020 called Intravenous Compatibility of Ceftazidine, Ubibactam, and Estrenam Using Simulated and Actual Y-Site Administration. So thank you so much to them for doing this because not only did they come out with here's the optimal regimen, but then they proved that you can in fact run these continuously. So this paper shows that Ceftazidine, Ubibactam at concentrations of 8, 25, and 50 milligrams per mil are compatible with Acetranam at concentrations of 10 and 20 milligrams per mil. So that's extremely helpful to bedside clinicians. So thank you to that group for, for taking the extra step and publishing the, the compatibility paper as well. We're going to transition a bit into our therapeutic drug monitoring section. We have lab data that shows give dose-optimized beta-lactams. Now we're giving two dose-optimized beta-lactam type, I guess Acetranam, you can split hairs, it's a monobactam, but we don't have a lot of good safety data, and we know that not all patients are equal, and that package insert dosing may or may not be appropriate for different patient populations. This is particularly important in critically ill adults, and so Dr. Ab Abdul Azi and colleagues published a position paper in intensive care medicine in June of 2020 called Antimicrobial Therapeutic Drug Monitoring in Critically Ill Adults. Jason Roberts is a phenomenal pharmacist down in Australia. He's the senior author on this paper, and this group is definitely leaders and pioneers in the therapeutic drug monitoring space. So what this position paper gets into is how we should be routinely doing therapeutic drug monitoring, especially in critically ill patients because standard doses often just don't cut it. They're either too high or too low, sometimes too low, and we need to be better about precision dosing antibiotics. And so they really get into the available data on therapeutic drug monitoring for antibacterials, antifungals, and antivirals. The paper gives a nice background on PKPD changes in critically ill patients, some things that we're probably all well aware of, but to point out is first, the significantly expanded volume of distribution for hydrophilic antimicrobials like beta-lactams, how hypoalbuminemia in this patient population can also increase the volume of distribution and then effectively your clearance. This is particularly meaningful for drugs like ertapenem that are 98% protein bound you are probably underdosing your critically ill patients if you're giving them once daily ertapenem since albumin plays such a huge factor in clearance. And then they get into the concepts of augmented renal clearance, which also would, of course, require higher doses. They also outline the basic criteria for therapeutic drug monitoring, and I like how they do this because TDM is not for everyone. The times that TDM is beneficial are four key factors. First, you have to have a drug with significant intra and or inter-individual PK variability. Second, you have to have a defined exposure that is associated with a pharmacological response, both in terms of efficacy and toxicity, because we don't want to draw labs that we have no idea what they mean and have no idea how to adjust. Three, you have to have a defined 
relevant sampling time points. You have to know when to draw the level and then what that level means for your patient. And then fourth, you have to have accurate and timely bioanalytical assays for drug measurement. So you can't send a sample unless you can run the sample and, and make sense of it. So those are important points for TDM. Then they have three tables. So table one, two, three, walk through the antibacterial, antifungal, and antiviral drug classes respectively. In these tables, they highlight the PKPD index of efficacy. And spoiler alert, unless you're a beta-lactam and where the efficacy driver is time over MIC, as we've talked about many times on this podcast, all other drugs, the efficacy index is AUC to MIC. And yes, this is even for things like the aminoglycosides that we have traditionally taught as concentration-dependent drugs. They're really AUC drugs. So if you want to simplify it, beta-lactams are time over MIC. Everything else is AUC to MIC. And then we just dose things differently for the efficacy and safety perspective. So we really dose aminoglycosides in a concentration-dependent manner for the safety standpoint. These tables also show the targets for efficacy and the thresholds for toxicity if they are known. So these are really, really good references. The text of this paper walks through all the common antimicrobials, which outlines their PK, PD, dosing in critically ill patients, TDM in critically ill patients if it exists, and then if a bioanalytical assay exists. And then finally, kind of the money table is table four, where they give key recommendations on therapeutic drug monitoring. And Notably, they don't say to not do TDM for any drug. They say every drug either got a yes, you should be doing TDM routinely, or they say at this time, we neither recommend nor discourage because we need more data, but in general, favoring TDM. The drugs that got an absolute yes, you should do TDM in these drugs, it has been shown to be clinically beneficial, are aminoglycosides, beta-lactams, tecoplanin, which we don't use in the United States, vancomycin, and then voriconazole, an azole antifungal, and then linazolid. Surprisingly, we've talked about this a bit, I think, on our ECMID podcast, and Brian Krass and Amit Pai and, and their colleagues have done a lot of work in this space. We now have a pretty well-defined criteria of a C-min for toxicity for linazolid, which is two to seven is where you kind of want to live, and anything higher than that, you start to see way more thrombocytopenia. So we don't routinely do linazolid TDM in the United States, but I think this is intriguing and I think we're seeing more that linazolid may in fact be a med we have to renally dose adjust. Those are the ones that get a yes, you should do TDM. The ones that they list as neither recommend or discourage are Bactrim, Daptomycin, fluoroquinolones, polymyxins, all the antifungals except for voriconazole, and then all the antivirals. And I will say the antivirals are definitely the area with the most limited data. We really have no idea with Valgian cyclovir, acyclovir, et cetera, what exposures are correlated to toxicities or, or efficacy. Thanks, Erin, for that great summary. And I, I read this paper again recently, and my first impressions were, holy crap, did you see the appendices of this paper? It is phenomenal. Oh, um, the supplements, I'm telling you. Like they, any literature review, uh, pharmacy residents, fellows, students, even more senior pharmacists need to do on TDM, go to the appendices of this paper and everything you've ever wanted to know is summarized there. All the studies are summarized beautifully. And, you know, I, I had the privilege of going over to Australia about a year ago and spending some time with Jason. And I'm not surprised to see this body of work from his group. He has a small army of really talented people working with him out there. And then his lab is just a state-of-the-art lab that does all of this. So kudos to that group and really being the leaders in the field to bring us closer to TDM for many of the drugs that we aren't currently monitoring. 
And I think the big one that is generating more and more buzz is the beta-lactams. So I wanna comment on some really important points that you made, and, and I just wanna underscore, related to the beta-lactam. First of all, although our knowledge is rapidly improving in the, in the last few years, our knowledge of antibiotic PK in critically ill patients is still really, really limited to small studies and very heterogeneous patient populations. If you look, for instance, among ICU patients with or without renal replacement therapy and the PK data for beta-lactams, your median sample size for those studies is 15 patients with renal replacement therapy and 13 patients without renal replacement therapy. So just take a second to let that set in, is many of the assumptions we're making, which I think are true, are based on really small studies in very heterogeneous populations. Now, those heterogeneous populations that are hyperdynamic, have altered volume of distribution and altered clearance, are many of the reasons why we should perhaps be doing TDM to begin with. Now, despite the limitations of the available literature, one thing that is very clear with the beta-lactams is that if you're hitting your exposure pharmacodynamic targets of, let's say, at least 100% free time above the MIC for beta-lactams, that appears to be associated with improved clinical outcomes. What is not known and what is much less defined are these exposure response relationships related to adverse effects and the suppression of resistance. And in fact, our clinical data for those two pieces are limited. Now we're starting to see more about cefepime and neurotoxicity and linking this to, to trough concentrations of cefepime, but we still need more clinical data for suppression of resistance. And that's certainly an important aspect of this as we move forward. And then finally, I think the other important point that has to be made when you're thinking about perhaps monitoring beta-lactam concentrations in your ICU patients are these practical considerations. There are now some commercial labs doing this, but you have to think about turnaround times. If this is a send out lab and I'm not getting it back for at least 24 to 48 hours, is that real time enough information for me to make actionable changes to my patient? And do you have the resources and expertise at your center to be able to take that level, interpret it, and make a subsequent dosing recommendation? So these are things that are gaps that still need to be filled. I think getting in-house capability is gonna be really important for this, for rapid turnaround time, and building our expertise as a field to be able to monitor beta-lactam levels. And I'm not going to lose hope that this is something that will still become standard of care over the next decade or so among certain populations that are at high risk for underexposure or high toxicity. Those are excellent points, Ryan, and some of our fellow SIDP colleagues made similar points in another paper that was published in AJHP this year. This paper is titled Towards Precision Medicine, Therapeutic Drug Monitoring Guided Dosing of Vancomycin and Beta-Lactam Antibiotics to Maximize Effectiveness and Minimize Toxicities. The first author on this is Jackie Cusimano, and then Ken Klinker, Megan Luther, and Carrie LaPlante are also on this paper. So this is a really nice clinical review, and they just walk through a lot of the salient points that you just discussed, Ryan. I want to point out for our listeners that on page three of this paper, there is this awesome graphic and then tables that go through all of the PKPD considerations and precision dosing considerations. We would love to see a future where this is routine care, especially for beta-lactams. This is like a great page to print off for your trainees and tape on the desk wall because it, it shows kind of all of these factors. So check that paper out. And the conclusion is very similar to what you just said, Ryan, and that we really do need robust studies that connect therapeutic drug monitoring to patient outcomes. We need faster turnaround times for these labs to implement them practically in clinical practice and, and then what that even would mean for our patients. 
Yeah, I think at the end of the day, we have to lead the field in justifying TDM in our patients. And of course, there are important billing and practical considerations with that of getting these labs implemented at your hospital. So really important points and, and really an all-star group there led by Jackie and, and Carrie LaPlante in putting that together. So that's a, a must read if you're interested in this topic or thinking about doing this at your hospital. I wanna transition now to some more PKPD data. And this is data that was published in Clinical Infectious Diseases in March of this year from the SMART study. And the title is The Effect of Renal Replacement Therapy and Antibiotic Dose on Antibiotic Concentrations in Critically Ill Patients data from the Multinational Sampling Antibiotics and Renal Replacement Therapy Study, or the SMART study. So this is another multinational PKPD study led by, of course, Dr. Jason Roberts and colleagues. And this is a really important study that aims to describe the types of renal replacement therapy practices that are being implemented across multiple countries, the antibiotic dosing regimens that are given to patients on renal replacement therapy, and then assess the association between those two things and antibiotic trough concentrations. Now, the SMART study itself set out to evaluate meropenem, piperacillin, tazobactam, vancomycin, imipenem, and linazolid. Unfortunately, recruitment was not as robust as what they would have liked in this study, and so this analysis is focused on meropenem, piptazo, and vancomycin specifically. What they did in this study is they enrolled patients across 29 ICUs in 14 different countries, and the types of renal replacement therapy that were considered for inclusion in this study were continuous venovenous hemofiltration, continual venovenous hemodialysis, or CVVHD, and continuous venovenous hemodiofiltration, or CVVHDF. Those are some mouthfuls. Strong work, Ryan. Yeah, didn't even practice that one, by the way. I know, I looked at your notes and I was like, that's a lot of, he's got to say a lot of letters soon. You did great. Thanks. Appreciate the support. The final type of renal replacement therapy that they considered in this study is a new term for me is PIRRT or prolonged intermittent renal replacement therapy. And if this is new to you as well, in short, this is prolonged dialysis sessions of six to 18 hours of continuous renal replacement therapy, but intermittently given somewhere between three or four times a week. I've never heard of that. Yeah. So apparently they do this in in other countries. So we're learning from our international colleagues for sure. You know, the other thing, (laughs) see, we're digressing a bit, but the the other thing I've never heard of this and actually in our, all Ryan put for that, he defined CVVH, which we could define in our sleep. Like he spelled it out, but then P-I-R-R-T, he just has just the letters. Yeah. I had no idea what you were about to say. Yeah, see, I'm keep, keeping you on your toes, which and is one I of the think. main objectives of this, by the way. Yeah. But, you know, the other thing I'm quickly appreciating from our podcast is if people are following our advice and cutting things out and taping them by their computers, they're getting <laughs> a really busy wall right about now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought about that, too, when I mentioned Jackie's, but Jackie's is, is quite good. Yeah, do it. We support our SIDP colleagues. And if you're running out of room by your computer, go to your neighbor and tape some things up by theirs for them. We do support trees though. So we're also okay if you just want to download these on your digital device. Okay. Let's get back to the SMART study, shall we? One thing that I really like about the SMART study in the way that Dr. Roberts and colleagues looked at this is they required measurement of both serum and urine creatinine as a marker of intrinsic renal function among patients on continuous renal replacement therapy. And they also assessed effluent volume and flow rates, which makes sense. 
take those two concepts together, what they did is they estimated total renal clearance as the sum of intrinsic renal function from the patient plus the rate of effluent flow, and together you have this total renal clearance estimation. So overall, they included 381 patients in this study. And like I mentioned, recruitment is not what they wanted. So the way they got to 381 patients in total is 210 patients were directly enrolled into SMART, and then they included 174 patients from other studies that had very similar inclusion criteria. So although you have many different sources of data, all the data was comparable. And in fact, when they looked at the SMART patients compared to the other cohort that they included, there were very few differences. So overall, 381 patients that contributed a total of 508 antibiotic trough concentrations. And one of the first things that stands out here is that's a lot of patients in the ICU on renal replacement therapy where we have TDM. So this is already the biggest multinational study that's been done going to the earlier points that Jackie made in her editorial, we need these kinds of data to justify TDM for our patients. So when you look at the modalities of renal replacement therapy, 21% of patients receive CVVH, 15% CVVHD, 37% receive CVVHDF, and 27% this mysterious PIRRT, or prolonged intermittent renal replacement therapy. So a significant percent of patients are receiving this in other countries. Not surprisingly, these were all ICU patients. They were very sick. The median Apache 2 scores were around 26. And the total median estimated renal clearance, again, keeping in mind the effluent flow rate plus the patient's intrinsic renal function was 50 milliliters per minute for patients. I think another important thing for those of you that are dosing antibiotics in continual renal replacement therapy, we always look to is, well, what's the effluent flow rate? And here the median effluent flow rate was 2.8 liters per hour, or if you rather, 47 milliliters per minute. Now, not surprisingly, one of the major outcomes and findings of this study is there was considerable variability in both the types of dosing regimens that patients receive for meropenem and piperacillin tazobactam and vancomycin, as well as the types and modalities of renal replacement therapy. And then not surprisingly, you see a very wide range of antibiotic trough concentrations that were measured among these patients. And so these wide error bars and point estimates that show a lot of variance around them are similar to what we've seen in Dolly, for instance, where you know if you measure antibiotic concentrations in these types of patients, you're going to see a lot of variability. And that's one of the major findings of this study as well. Now, for the purposes of data analysis, they normalize this ratio of total daily dose to estimated total renal clearance. And because all these drugs are eliminated renally, there's a very nice association with all three of them is that as renal clearance goes up, your trough concentrations tend to go down. So again, not surprising findings, but now we have some really good data to help point people to. Now, table five is one part of the study where they tried to associate the trough concentration to clinical outcomes. And specifically, because they had a lot of patients, they looked at 28-day mortality. And so in table five of this paper, you'll see both an unadjusted and adjusted hazard ratios linking trough concentrations to mortality. And what they found is that if meropenem trough concentrations were less than two milligrams per liter, or kind of below the MIC cutoff for, say, pseudomonas, there was a higher risk of death. 
And if your tazobactam concentrations were greater than five milligrams per liter, this was associated with survival or having enough beta-lactamase inhibitor there. Now, I want our audience to be very careful with these data. Keep in mind the source of where these data came from, multiple different studies looking at many different clinical endpoints. And if you look specifically at the meropenem association of low trough level to higher risk of death, that's based on four patients in that subgroup. So again, it was statistically significant. I wholeheartedly believe that if you don't dose beta-lactams appropriately, that it does lead to detrimental outcomes for patients. But this is not the right study to point to with those associations. These are small numbers and very heterogeneous populations. In the end, Aaron, when we take all these things together, what does this study teach us? I think number one, it teaches us that across ICUs in 14 different countries, dosing of antibiotics and renal replacement therapy is literally all over the place. There's a nice table in this paper that shows how variable these dosing regimens were that, that clinicians selected. And not surprisingly then, there's at least an eightfold variability in total daily doses, which is associated with highly variable antibiotic trough concentrations. Now, when you look at the probability of target attainment here, and let's say you use a conservative but important cutoff of 100% free drug concentration above the MIC for beta-lactams, 96% of patients that receive meropenem and piptazo met this cutoff. So we're not underdosing a lot of these patients. It's just the dosing are highly variable. And in fact, in this study, most of the patients that didn't meet their pharmacodynamic targets were those patients that received vancomycin. And we're certainly aware of all the nuances of dosing vancomycin in this population. So in the end, perhaps what these data most importantly tell us is this is a very important patient population that perhaps we should be measuring drug levels in. Thanks, Ryan. That's an awesome summary of that paper. And I think it's good and that it's another study underscoring the importance of therapeutic drug monitoring. But I think to Jackie's point in her position paper earlier, we still don't actually know what any of this means, honestly. And what we really, really need are robust studies that show levels in relation to outcomes, both efficacy and safety and how we do that in, in clinical practice. I think we've made the point that precision medicine is necessary because we see a ton of variability, but now we need to know how to actually do it, how to actually implement it, what we're aiming for, what the targets are and what those mean. I don't think any of that is defined yet. I agree, and I have confidence that Jason Roberts and his colleagues who are really leading the way in this field will help fill some of those gaps moving forward. Yeah, there's a lot. Also, Mark Sheets's group and the group in, at the University of Florida are doing some pretty good work. It was published after this podcast cutoff deadline for literature, so maybe at the end of the year we'll have to do the July to December, but there's some recent data out about cefepime TDM and getting honing in closer and closer to that to drugs that definitely have toxicities associated with them if they accumulate. So it's going to yeah. be one day, right? What do we keep saying five years from now? This will be the new normal. But right, right. Yeah. So don't worry, Mark and Ken, we haven't forgotten your studies if you're listening and we'll be back with more information on those. We just need to know what doses to give people, which transitions nicely into the next study Ryan's going to talk to us about, which is looking at ceftriaxone dosing. And I know Oh my goodness, this is a quite, if you look up ceftriaxone and up to date, you get one to two grams every 12 to 24 hours, which has got to be the most unhelpful recommendation in the history of ever. But I know that for the most part, I can safely give my patients four grams a day because if they have meningitis, I give them four grams a day and I don't blink an eye. So what's the deal with one gram versus four grams versus two? Where are we going with that? Thanks, Aaron, for that transition. Actually, I thought for a second there, you were telling me to go ahead and move it along, Ryan. 
but your transition was perfectly placed because ceftriaxone certainly is one of these antibiotics where dosing is highly variable. So there's an interesting study out formally in June of antimicrobial agents and chemotherapy just this year from a group of pharmacists led by Andrew Ackerman and Tom Dilworth in Wisconsin, where they looked at ICU patients receiving either one gram of ceftriaxone compared to patients that received two grams of ceftriaxone, and they started to evaluate their clinical outcomes. Now, like you, Aaron, I'm thinking, well, man, in the ICU, there's all kinds of reasons why I might give a patient ceftriaxone. So what they did in this retrospective analysis at five hospitals in Wisconsin is they first limited their sample to patients that received ceftriaxone in the ICU for at least 72 hours and had to have at least one serum albumin measured within the first 24 hours of initiation. To your earlier points about ceftriaxone being highly protein bound, we know hypoalbuminemia can affect both volume distribution and increased clearance of ceftriaxone. So certainly we would know then that patients with hypoalbuminemia would be at risk for suboptimal exposures of ceftriaxone. Now, importantly here, they excluded patients that had meningitis or CNS infections. They excluded pregnant patients, any patients that received ceftriaxone for prophylaxis for any reason, treatment with alternative antibiotics for at least 24 hours, and then they excluded patients that had ceftriaxone-resistant pathogens recovered, of course, because this could be an important confounder for outcomes. And then they finally excluded patients who received both one or two grams or twice daily administration of ceftriaxone. So what we're left with then is an ICU population receiving at least three days of ceftriaxone. We have albumin levels, and the groups received either one gram or two grams of ceftriaxone. Now, notably, there still could be some important residual confounding bias here. And so the group did a really nice propensity score matching analysis where they used nearest neighbor approaches on a one-to-one -one basis and linked patients by age, SOFA score, albumin level, the culture type, the hospital location, one of those five hospitals they were at, and their infectious diagnosis. So overall, 416 patients met their eligibility criteria, but there was a propensity score match analysis of 212 patients or 106 patients in each group of one gram versus two grams of ceftriaxone. To jump right into it here, the main finding is treatment failure was defined as either in-hospital mortality or escalation of therapy. And in all cases, escalation of therapy was moving away from ceftriaxone and going to either cefepime or piperacillin and tazobactam. And in their propensity-matched analysis, they found that treatment failure rates were 19.8% among patients that received one gram of ceftriaxone and only 6.6% among patients that received two grams of ceftriaxone. So really important difference there is patients receiving the lower dose had much higher rates of treatment failure. Now, if you look into some of the details here, treatment failure really wasn't driven by in-hospital mortality. In fact, treatment failure was almost exclusively driven by the need of escalation for therapy. And so 10 patients in the one gram group had to have escalation to either cefepime or piptazo. Now, the rates of failure were also higher among patients with hypoalbuminemia, which kind of fits some of our PK principles we're thinking about. Rates of failure were higher in the one gram group, but the SOFA score was greater than 10. And also, surprisingly, among patients with just urinary tract infections, the rate of failure was still higher for one gram versus two. Now, in multivariate analysis, importantly, receipt of two grams of ceftriaxone was independently associated with treatment success here. There was no difference in other adverse events for giving higher doses, for instance, no difference in the Clostridium difficile diarrhea or anything else, and overall, no differences in hospital mortality or length of stay.
So what we're left with here is a relatively, let's call it soft clinical outcome, but an important clinical outcome of the need to escalate therapy, which occurred much more frequently if you gave one gram of ceftriaxone to ICU patients as compared to giving two grams of ceftriaxone to ICU patients. So I think we again have further evidence Let's optimize our exposures to beta-lactams. And here now we have some good evidence for ceftriaxone as well. Yeah, I love these data. I love this paper because this is something we're big fans of is this maximum tolerable dose. And I teed you up with this, but if I know giving four grams a day is safe and I wouldn't blink at doing that for a patient with meningitis, why are we quibbling over one gram versus two grams for patients with other infections? And I think the biggest, not pushback, but something that came up when we rolled out maximum tolerable dose, dose optimization at our center was this question of, is there an exposure response relationship with C. diff? And I didn't know the answer. And I thought that was a very important question and one we're going to try to study, although it's extremely difficult, obviously, so many confounders. But here you had, at least they looked at this as a secondary outcome, which I love. And it looks like, you know, giving one gram versus two gram doesn't change your risk of getting C. diff at all. Of course, rates of C. diff were quite low, but that I think was the only thing that, that stood out of giving maximum tolerable doses. Are you going to lead to that outcome more? And, and I didn't know the answer. And I think that's something to consider and explore and safety is very important. But again, here's more data that shows beta-lactams are relatively safe and underdosing them is pretty bad because you just lead to more exposures. So I love this paper. Yeah, I do too. I think there's really important considerations here. First of all, this is an ICU population. So Let's be clear about that. In your ICU patients, these are the patients you always want to optimize exposures. Don't worry about source. Don't worry about renal function. Give two grams of ceftriaxone. I think these data help support that. Yeah. The other thing is if you have stewardship programs out there that are quibbling over the cost of one gram versus two grams of ceftriaxone, this drug is now generic. That cost pales in comparison to poor clinical outcomes and then the need to escalate to cefepime or piptazo anyways really important practical considerations here. This is one of these nice studies that we can point to in our stewardship meetings and say, listen, let's change every guideline we have in our ICU patients and give them all two grams of ceftriaxone and be done with it. And you have good evidence to support that now. Yeah, totally agree. Other than you saying it's now generic, which just shows how old you are, Ryan, because it's hilarious. Ceftriaxone has been generic for quite some time. It was made oh, you, don't, like you don't call it Rocephin anymore? That drug came to market in like the 80s, dude. Now it's it's cheap. Give two grams. Ceftriaxone generic. Cut it out and put it by your computer. The key takeaways <laughs> from the Breakpoints podcast. Oh, that was great. Okay, focusing again. Give two grams of ceftriaxone, especially to your ICU patients. All right, now we're going to completely switch gears. I don't even know how to do this seamlessly, so I'm just going to completely pivot on the podcast. And we're going to move into the staff aureus segment. Uh, so we have three papers to talk about to round out this podcast about staph aureus. So the first paper we've talked about a couple times, so I'm not going to get too far into it, but I want everyone to know that the CAMERA-2 study was officially published this year in February in JAMA. The full title of the manuscript is Effect of Vancomycin or Daptomycin with or without an antistaphylococcal beta-lactam on mortality, bacteremia, relapse, or treatment failure in patients with MRSA bacteremia, a randomized clinical trial. This is by Stephen Tong and colleagues. And just a teaser for future Breakpoints, Stephen is graciously agreed to be on the Breakpoints podcast, our next episode after this one. It's pretty much all I'm going to say about this. If you want to hear more about the CAMERA-2 trial, we did discuss the results of this in our How ECMID 2019 Went Viral Breakpoints episode. What our listeners right now need to know is one, the data are published, and two, stay tuned next month when Breakpoints gets real 
deep into MRSA combination therapy, so we'll be talking a lot more about that. The next trial that was published regarding Staph aureus was by Barbara Ellen Jones and colleagues. This was published in JAMA Internal Medicine on February 17, 2020. This paper is entitled Empirical Anti-MRSA versus Standard Antibiotic Therapy and Risk of 30-Day Mortality in Patients Hospitalized for Pneumonia. Now, this is an important study for your practice, you guys, so listen closely. This was a retrospective multi-center cohort study of 88,605 hospitalized patients with community onset pneumonia treated at Veterans Health Administration Hospitals from January 1st, 2008 through December 31st, 2013. Right away, you will say it is the VA population, which may or may not necessarily translate to your patient population being predominantly older male patients with comorbidities at the Veterans Affairs Hospitals. However, important data nonetheless as we get into it. So primary objective was comparing 30-day mortality rates among patients receiving empirical anti-MRSA therapy versus standard empirical antibiotic regimens within the first calendar day of hospitalization. Standard antibiotics were defined as a beta-lactam plus a macrolide or a tetracycline or a respiratory fluoroquinolone, so your CAP antibiotics. They looked at outcomes in patients by different subgroups too, and so they looked at, importantly, four subgroups. One, those at high clinical risk for MRSA, which they defined as either having a history of an MRSA infection or colonization within the past year or having at least two risk factors, which were previous hospitalization, nursing home residents, or previous IV antibiotic therapy within 90 days. So that's high risk for MRSA. They looked at patients admitted to the ICU, who would, of course, be sicker. They looked at patients that actually had a positive MRSA culture, and they called a clinically relevant positive MRSA culture anything that occurred within the first two days from admission and was from a blood or a respiratory source. So those are patients with legit MRSA infection. And then they looked at patients with a positive MRSA infection prevention nasal screen, which is done routinely at the VA. So these are the four subgroups. And they focused on those because they said, well, you know, those are the people that actually may warrant empirical MRSA therapy. And so nasal screenings are done by PCR. And they said that that nasal screening had to be done either within the first two calendar days, or they took anything within a year prior. So if you had a positive nasal PCR within a year prior, that counted as being a part of that subgroup. They used an inverse probability of treatment propensity score weighting analysis to determine the effect of the three treatments. So either standard therapy, standard therapy plus empirical anti-MRSA therapy, or empirical anti-MRSA therapy without standard therapy, but still got anti-MRSA therapy. And they adjusted for confounders all around. I think they looked at 41 different disease comorbidities that could have impacted outcomes, including length of ICU stay, et cetera. And they also adjusted at the facility level and by year, because of course, practice changes significantly over a decade or, well, actually maybe for CAP it didn't because those CAP guidelines took quite some time, but they adjusted by year as well. I wonder what if they, Rosefin was generic when they started this study. I don't know, Red. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I think I graduated high school when they started this study, just for perspective. Good times. What this study found, they found 13,528 patients received empirical anti-MRSA therapy plus standard antibiotics. So this is Ceftri, Azithro, Vanco, or similar. They found 20,104 patients received empirical anti-MRSA therapy without standard antibiotics. And then they found 54,973 patients received standard antibiotics, so no empirical anti-MRSA therapy. 
the patients that got anti-MRSA therapy did have a greater comorbidity burden, they had more risk factors for MRSA, and they had a greater severity of illness. So that is to be expected. But after adjustment for all these things, the risk of mortality was greater, greater in those who received anti-MRSA treatment with standard therapy compared to standard therapy alone, an adjust risk ratio of 1.4, mortality was 16% versus 6%, that was statistically significant. Even when they tease out the subgroups of patients with risk factors for MRSA, empiric anti-MRSA therapy still suggested higher mortality compared to the CAP therapy alone, an adjusted risk ratio of 1.2. When they looked at patients who were sick enough to go to the ICU, still associated with higher mortality, ratio of 1.3. And when they looked at patients who were PCR positive, ratio of 1.6, so still adjusted with higher mortality. The only place there was no difference were in patients that had a clinically relevant positive MRSA culture, so they actually warranted MRSA therapy, but the adjusted risk ratio there was 1.1, not statistically significant. They also found an increase in secondary outcomes of acute kidney injury and secondary infections such as C. diff, VRE, et cetera, in patients receiving empirical anti-MRSA therapy. Now, propensity matching and adjusted weight analysis and all of the fancy statistics we do are good. They're in fact exceptional and there's a whole supplement going through all of their data and algorithms so you can repeat what they did with their data, but it may not account for all possible confounding and we know that it's obvious the sicker patients got empirical anti-MRSA therapy, but they did a pretty darn good job, probably as good as you can get to try to adjust for all those and they still found the significant difference in outcomes. And these data definitely give me pause, and I think give a lot of stewardship programs ammo to say, hold Vanco and patients admitted with CAP, only start it if they culture MRSA. I don't think there's the value in the empirical start, and you can save those two days or three days of Vanco, and that's if you're doing good at discontinuing it. I think overwhelmingly we see we're giving a lot of patients vancomycin that don't need it. Yeah, I totally agree, Aaron. And you know, one of my favorite quotes from the study right at the end is this by the authors, the underlying assumption of this approach of, let's say, adding anti-MRSA therapy is that the benefit of more potent antibiotics during the empiric phase exceeds harm. And in fact, what they found here is that the harm exceeded the benefit. And yeah. so very, very important stewardship principles here. Really, we can restrict anti-MRSA therapy for CAP. I know this is in the VA population, but hey, let's talk about these VA databases. This is not possible without this national VA database and resource to archive all of this data over more than a decade and put it out there that makes a very important clinical practice change. Yeah, what a world it would be if we had one universal EHR and could pool all of these data. So the VA does an exceptional job with this. We get these huge numbers. And exactly, I love this. I think this is what everyone needs to safely say, you know, hold Vanco. And an approach I use in my clinical practice a lot is you guys, you can always add it. You can always add it on when risk of a poor outcome is so low, but in fact, adding the drug could cause harm. And now this is quite different from a patient who's in septic shock or something yep. like that, right? That We're not talking about those patients. We're talking about patients admitted with pneumonia and they're, they're sick because they have respiratory symptoms and they have pneumonia, but they're not hemodynamically unstable and things like that. And those patients, hold it up front. You can always add it later. I agree. So let's wrap up this podcast with one more study about staph aureus. And now we're going to transition to MSSA and methicillin-susceptible staph aureus bacteremia. And I want to talk about a recently published randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial that came out of Canada. And this is led by Matthew Chang, 
as the first author and Todd Lee as the last author. And the title here is Adjunctive Daptomycin in the Treatment of Methicillin Susceptible Staph aureus Bacteremia, a Randomized Controlled Trial. So this is in clinical infectious diseases. And if you're hearing the title and thinking, well, wait, why would I add daptomycin for MSSA bacteremia? The authors give some rationale in their background here. First of all, they point to the potential of in vitro synergy between daptomycin and our anti-staphylococcal beta-lactams, like let's say cefazolin or oxacillin, or in this case, they use cloxacillin. And there is some in vitro data to suggest perhaps there's synergy and you can maximize the efficacy of each of those drugs individually by giving them together. There's also some rationale that maybe some MSSA isolates express very low levels of MECA, and that if you're not having MECA active or methicillin resistant therapy up front, that perhaps that could lead to detrimental outcomes. So what they did in this study is they included patients with monomicrobial bloodstream infections due to MSSA. And every single patient in the study received standard of care, which consisted of a anti-staphylococcal beta-lactam, either cloxacillin or cefazolin, plus source control, plus an ID consult, and an echocardiogram. So everybody gets that standard therapy for staph bacteremia. The randomization then occurred for patients receiving daptomycin at six milligrams per kilogram for five days, or placebo for five days as an adjunct to the beta-lactam backbone. Now, importantly here, the primary outcome of the study was resolution of bloodstream infection defined as clearance or microbiologic eradication from blood cultures. And importantly, one of the things that they can do in a randomized controlled trial like this is they mandated at least two sets of blood cultures every single day until there was confirmed clearance of those blood cultures. Secondary outcomes include things that you would expect to see in a study like this, death, relapse, bloodstream infections, metastatic complications from staph, and certainly adverse effects of giving combination therapy. Overall, the study randomized and included 104 patients in their intention to treat analysis. This included 51 patients that received placebo and 53 patients that received daptomycin. Now, at the time of study enrollment, 68% of the enrolled patients were still had positive blood cultures before they received any doses of DAPTO or placebo. And the median time from the very first blood culture to study enrollment was 47 hours. And this is a point that I was really interested in, is were they using rapid diagnostics to identify staph rapidly? Were they getting beta-lactams on board quickly? Because that's probably one of the most important determinants of outcomes in this patient population. And so from the time of blood culture to study enrollment, 47 hours. So it looks like they did expedite this process pretty well. Overall, 73% of patients in the study received cefazolin. The other 27% received cloxacillin. Now, let's jump right into the outcomes here. And in terms of their outcomes, where again, they looked at duration of bacteremia, death, metastatic complications, and adverse effects, absolutely no difference. Now, keep in mind for a randomized study, you're only talking about 50 patients or so in each arm here, but really there's no signal that adding daptomycin led to improved outcomes. In fact, there was no uh, shorter duration of bacteremia, no clinical meaningfully uh, different outcomes. So really the conclusions here are adding daptomycin for MSSA bacteremia really doesn't add a whole lot. Now, a few things stand out to me when looking at a kind of a study like this is I'm always thinking of, well, in my sickest patients, is there any rationale to be more aggressive? And I think an important nuance of this study is they only enrolled 35% of potentially eligible subjects. 
And in fact, most of the patients they did not enroll in this study were critically ill patients that were anticipated to die rapidly, or they could not get informed consent for for a randomized controlled trial. And perhaps those are also the patients that may have some benefit from combination therapy. So keep that in mind as you're reading a study like this. They also excluded polymicrobial infections. And so if they had staph and strep or staph and a gram negative, those patients are out. Again, maybe patients at higher risk for poorer outcomes. And it's not clear how rapid diagnostics were used at these two hospitals in Canada. So that's something certainly we'd want to know moving forward. And would there be a difference if you start adaptomycin from day one rather than waiting till definitive therapy on typically day two or three? Um, but overall, I think we can say, at least based on the evidence we have available right now, adding daptomycin to beta-lactams for MSSA bacteremia is probably a no-go for now. MSSA too. I'm glad they looked at MSSA because we always talk about MRSA, but we see persistent MSSA and we like shrug our shoulders. There's some in vitro data on erdapenem cefazolin. Sometimes we try that combo, but there's no clinical data. And persistent MSSA, I mean, obviously mostly a source control issue, but it's tough too. And we need data in this space as well. But like you said, aggressive combo therapy is likely more beneficial in patients at higher risk of mortality. So getting into this precision medicine and biomarkers and TDM and all of these things, how do we identify those patients up front? Because universal combination therapy with daptomycin for every patient is not going to be a benefit in the less sick patients is, is not good because then we have all this exposure and things that we don't need. But there are definitely patients who might benefit, I think, from aggressive combinations up front. So more to learn in, in the space, but an important important trial for this point in time. And for now, we will not be routinely adding daptomycin to our patients with MSSA bacteremia. Our hospital pharmacy budgets would appreciate that. Although dapto did go generic recently. <laughs> Don't Just get me so started. You know, like it actually legitimately did. So adapto is actually not that expensive anymore. <laughs> Relatively more expensive than Vanco still, but really honestly, not that, not that expensive as it used to be. But I think that wraps it up. So hopefully to our listeners, you have learned a lot about the notable infectious diseases publications from the first half of 2020 that you may have missed while taking care of patients with COVID-19. Thank you to all everyone does who's listening to this podcast. Whatever your role is in patient care, we appreciate you. We know it's been a heck of a year. So hang in there and stay safe. Thank you also to our amazing podcast production team for this episode that included Rachel Britt, Geraldine Sin, Julianne Justo, Zara Escobar, Sarah Spitznagel, Travis Jones, and Kelly Cole. Breakpoints is produced by the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists. This episode was hosted by Aaron McCreary and Ryan Shields. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. Again, if you're listening for BCIDP credit, you can access how to get that continuing education on the SIDP website. And you can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials now and for the future.